right. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to you all. If you would turn to Genesis chapter 2 this morning, we won't finish Revelation today. We'll get back to that next week, Lord willing. But I'd like for us, in light of Father's Day, to look at Genesis chapter 2. The title of the message is The Man of Dust, which comes from verse 7 of Genesis 2. I'm very thankful for Jan and Emily and David, Molly, Annie and Jonathan, because they're all essential to my fatherhood in various ways. And so I'm so thankful for the blessing they are to me. Thankful for the blessing of being a father and God's design. I'm especially thankful for grace through Jesus Christ for my many failings as a father. And I'm thankful that the ultimate father is God, who um, in so many ways is the hope that we all have. He's the hope that we have as fathers. He's the hope that our wives have. He's the hope that our children have because we are just meant to reflect something of the great father, but we were never intended to be the ultimate source of their help and their happiness. And so I'm thankful for uh, the good, good father we have in God. And so if you would just uh, look uh, at verse 7, and we'll look at other verses in this uh, part of Genesis, but verse 7 simply says, Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Uh, the definition that I have in your notes of a man um, is a man is a biological male created in the, excuse me, created in the image of God to be strong and courageous in trusting and loving according to God's word, especially in taking responsibility for leading both spiritually and practically and protecting and providing as God has designed through whatever sacrifice is necessary. And so this morning I'd like for us to take some time to look at Genesis chapter 2 and the surrounding verses and to think about uh, what the Bible has to say about manhood in light of fatherhood because both are under attack today in our society in great ways. So let's pray again. Father, we just thank you again for your word. We thank you for the truth. Uh, Lord Jesus, you've told us that the truth is meant to set us free. It's truly what we need to see and believe that we might be set free that we might find the help in you that we need, that we might find the happiness in you that only you can provide, that we might truly live more and more like you have created and redeemed us to live. And so we thank you for the truth, and we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, would open our eyes more and more to the truth, deepen our understanding, set us free more and more, and cause us to rejoice in you, our Father, and to rejoice in you, Lord Jesus, our Savior, in greater, deeper, richer ways. So please be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. It's interesting, just this morning there was an article um, on Fox News about how, I think it is in Massachusetts, where they're trying to change the day, the, the name of the holiday from Father's Day to Parents' Day, uh, which is sort of um, consistent with what they're doing in Massachusetts with regard to inclusive language and and that sort of thing. And so in our country, there's all kinds of things going on in certain lo- localities and in general that are trying to redefine 
fatherhood and motherhood and manhood and womanhood. And so like I did on Mother's Day, focusing on what does it mean to be a woman, um, I want to focus on what does it mean to be a man because uh, in our society it's definitely something that's under attack and we may not realize um, just how great the attack is. And yet there are still uh, people who would not agree with what the Bible says about men and women who still in some sense long for that to be the case. It's interesting, you may have seen the viral TikTok video that uh, went out. Uh, that's this um, young lady in Los Angeles who is videoing herself and talking about the challenges of dating in 2023. And so in this short video, she starts out by saying, uh, do you want to know one of the saddest realizations I recently had? And she goes on to explain what that realization was. She said, it's really hard to find a man who's willing to play the more traditional masculine role in the relationship in today's day and age who is not a conservative. She is a, a professed liberal. And she's bemoaning the fact that all the men that uh, are more traditional in their views are conservative. And she goes on to say, a, a man, she's looking for a man who wants to pay on the first date, who wants to open your door, who has that want and desire to take care of you and to provide. And she says, the only men I can find like that are conservative men. And she's a liberal in her views because she'll go on to say, as a liberal woman, I do want to be respected for my independence and I do want to have my own autonomy in the relationship and not be conformed to the traditional female homemaker childbearing role. And so she says, I don't want to be a traditional female or wife or mother, but I want my man, my husband, the one I'm dating or whatever it might be, to be much more traditional, which is an interesting thing. She says, most of the men I do date uh, have that more natural provider of masculinity about them, um, and those that do are conservative. So she ends by simply saying, so I don't really know what to do because I don't want to compromise my morals and values just to find a man, but am I asking to have my cake and eat it too? And most people would say yes. Why, why is that? In what sense... In the sense that she wants the fruit without the root. She wants the fruit of a, a man who's going to take care of her and is going to treat her with honor and respect and, and do a lot of things that God very clearly says men and husbands are supposed to do. But she doesn't want to embrace the root of that. She doesn't want to embrace the foundation of that because when we talk about being a conservative, most people would say that word conserve is the idea of trying to hang on to something. Hang on to something that's good. Conserve something that was a part of the past. Now, progressives and most liberals today, in terms of how they're defined, are trying to leave the past behind. They're trying to get rid of the past. They want things to change because they think that's, that's evolution. And so to conserve the past means I want to conserve the idea 
that a man shows respect to a woman and opens her door and pays for the first date and is more traditional in that sense. And where does that come from? That comes from our Christian heritage. To honor women is a Christian value. And in the times of the New Testament, women were not treated the way we see uh, God telling women to be treated. They were seen as second-class citizens at best. And they were not treated with honor and respect. And peop- the guys in the first century weren't opening their doors and weren't uh, going the extra mile to serve them and love them and lay down their lives for them. That's not the way it worked in society. And so the Christian view was radically, radically different. And this liberal woman is saying, wow, uh, this conservative view that is trying to hang on to things from our Christian heritage is really something I like. But I want it in the context of a liberal world that basically rejects all the root that produced that fruit in our country. And so that's part of the illusion is that you can maintain the fruit and deny the root. We've been, as many people have said, we've been living off of borrowed capital for a long time in our country. I mean, we've rejected God, we've rejected the Bible, we've rejected Christianity for a long time, and we've just been kind of living off of that capital for a while, and now, uh, you know, the roosters are coming home to roost, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, We're beginning to reap the fruit of decades of rejecting God and his word and our Christian heritage. And so, as a result, we have a generation that's that's, um, being raised that doesn't see things the same way. They don't don't even know a lot of the Bible stories. They don't even know much of the Bible. Uh, They don't really even know what God has to say about what it means to be a man or to be a woman. And so, in our day and time, we're living in a culture that uh, we're breathing the same air, which means we're being led away from what God says is really true. And so it's important at different times to be reminded of what the Bible actually says. It's interesting uh, when you think about the the creation of man. Um, Matthew Henry in his commentary on what God does in creating man, he, he highlights the phrase in Genesis 1 where God is creating all these things and he gets to the sixth day and then he says, he makes this pronouncement, so to speak, let us make man. As if to say, he said, having at last settled the preliminaries, let us now apply ourselves to the business. Let us make man. Meaning, this is what all this other stuff, these other five days was all about. Getting to this point of making man. So that you could hear God say that in a way that says very gladly and happily, okay, now let's make man that we might make man glad. He gladly made man that he might make man glad. And how did he do that? He said, let us make man in our image. And yet, the interesting thing is that it says that he started with the finest and smallest of particles. It doesn't say he started with a big stone or a big clump of dirt. He started with dust. Small, small stuff. And so 
Um, what he does is he glorifies dust. So that's why it says in verse 7, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground. It's interesting if you read or watch somebody perform Hamlet. In Hamlet, there's um, this discussion about man. And um, the character in Hamlet is talking about man and how great he is in certain ways. What a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, how infinite in faculties, in form and moving, how expressed and admirable in action, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, the paragon of animals. And yet, to me, what is this quintessence of dust? And in the context, I think it's Hamlet bemoaning the fact that his father has just died. And he's going through the grief of his father. And he's beginning to reflect on man, and he calls man this quintessence of dust, um, which could be understood as this thing that is just a pile of dust. What are we? It's kind of like the song by Kansas, All We Are is Dust in the Wind. Hamlet is saying, when I look at life and the, the pains and fallenness of man, I think, what is man other than just a pile of dust? In fact, the, the word for man comes from the word for ground, which means man is the ground person or the earthy person. Uh, when we talk about people being, that guy's really down to earth. Well, we're all down to earth because we're all made of, out of dust. That's just the way it is. And it's interesting, later on in Genesis 3, God is judging Adam after he's rebelled. And he says in verse 19, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. God says, you are dust. Later on in chapter 18, Abraham is talking to God about the whole issue of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, Now behold, I have, ventured, I have ventured to speak to the Lord, although I am dust and ashes. So God tells Adam, you're dust. Abraham confesses, I'm dust. Later on in Psalm 103, it says, For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are dust. We are dust. And so... It's helpful to realize where we've come from, that we are what we are because of God. We're not what we are because of us, because we're something great. We're dust. We're the smallest of particles. And yet God has glorified man. What is man that you should care for him, that you should put him over all of creation? What is man? Dust, but glorified dust. Because God has chosen to put you and I, this dust, over his creation. And so it's important when we begin to think about how do we define man. And that, that's been a question that's been um, talked about, thought about, asked uh, for thousands of years. Philosophers have always asked the question, what is man? What is this all about? And so the definition I gave you was was meant to try to pull together a lot of different things that the Bible says about what it means to be a man. 
But when you think about the definition, it's in one sense very much law. It's about what a man ought to be and what a man ought to do. And very quickly, we need to recognize that in one sense, that's a vision for for our lives as men. That there is something we ought to be and we ought to do as, as men. But it ought to very quickly also convict us of how far short we fall of what we ought to be and what we ought to do. And it's meant to drive us to the man, Jesus Christ. And so being glorified dust um, and the one, on the one hand humbles us, but on the other hand it says there's something very dignified about man. Therefore, we are not to trample on one another as if we're only dust. Because we're not only dust. We are dust, but we're glorified dust because God has given us a purpose that is a high purpose. And that purpose is based on his design. He's created us with a design. And that's what the whole point of Genesis uh, 2 verse 7, when it talks about God forming man from the dust of the ground, and you read all that is said, it's not just without purpose. He's created us for good purposes in this world. Um, One of the questions that comes up in our day and time is, is the idea of manhood simply a social construct, something that people just kind of come up with? Or is it a, a divine creation? Is there really a purpose for man and men as men. If you believe in evolution, that we just kind of sprung out of the goo or sprung into goo and out of the goo, then you don't have much in the way of arguing that a man or a woman has much of a purpose other than whatever you make it up to be. But if we're truly created by God, then we're created with a design. And that's what's under attack today is the design. There's... um a philosopher, a a woman philosopher, who said this, excuse me, I am awfully greedy. I want everything from life. I want to be a woman and to be a man, to have many friends and to have loneliness, to work much and write good books, to travel and enjoy myself, to be selfish and to be unselfish. You see, it is difficult to get all, all which I want. And then when I do not succeed, I get mad with anger. That's very interesting that she would confess what seems to be the spirit of our age. I'm very greedy. I want everything from life. I want to be a woman and I want to be a man. Which says, I don't want to be simply what God designed me to be. That's an expression of actually rebellion against the creator, not submission to it. And so you start, we start defining the issue of manhood in terms of we were created by God and created with a purpose. So God defines for us what that means. And that's why it's important to remind ourselves that we, as men, were created to image God. Um in Genesis chapter uh, 1, verse 26 to 27, I mentioned that earlier. God says, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth 
and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Again, in our day and time, people want to be whatever they want to be. And sometimes parents will tell their kids, you can be whatever you want to be. Uh, And maybe they mean there's a lot of different things you can do. Don't limit yourself to to these few things. But the reality is, literally, no, you can't be anything you want to be. Because God has defined the limits of what we can be or not be. Um, And so it's helpful just to remember that God created us with a purpose and we have to be careful of simply rejecting that. There's another um, French philosopher who said, man is the only creature who refuses to be what he is. As far as we know, we don't know, we have a squirrel that's in our backyard right now. As far as we know, that squirrel isn't running around saying, I don't want to be a squirrel. I don't want to be a squirrel. I don't want to be a squirrel. But men and women run around all, all the time saying, I don't want to be what God created me to be. I don't want to be what God created me to be. And so that's the problem that we have, is that we were created to reflect certain things about God. We're not re- created to reflect everything about God. We can't reflect his omnipotence or his omniscience or his omnipresence. But there are certain things that we can reflect about God as men and women. But there are certain things about God that men especially are are meant to reflect. And therefore, we need to think about what that is. And that's why we go on to talk about other things that we see. In our day and time, one of the questions about manhood is whether or not you can actually look at somebody and tell whether or not they're a man. In fact... Um, there's a movement away from even putting on the birth certificate whether that little baby is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. Why? Doctor can't tell. Can't tell just by looking at the boy or the girl. Got to wait and find out what she or he or it feels like, right? It's all, down, it's all a matter now of how we feel. And in verses 21 and 22 of chapter 2, it talks about the fact that God caused Adam to fall asleep. He took his side, some translate that rib, and created a woman. Which means that in one sense, he created two people that were very similar and yet not exactly the same. So much so that you could say, this is Adam and this is Eve. And you can't get them confused. It's very easy to tell who's Adam and who's Eve. And yet, there's a very real sense in which, when it says in Romans 1, man did not glorify God nor give thanks. Those two things are very closely related. That we're not thankful for how God has obviously made us to be. Um, there's a Russian writer who said this, Gentlemen, let us suppose that man is not stupid. But if he is not stupid, he is monstr- monstrously ungrateful, phenomenally ungrateful. In fact, I believe that the best definition of man 
is the ungrateful biped. The ungrateful animal person creature that walks on two feet, two legs, biped. The ungrateful biped. And so one expression of our refusing to glorify God and showing ingratitude is actually our rejection of the obvious. That if I have an X and a Y chromosome or chromosomes, then I'm a male and I'm a man. If I have an X and X set of chromosomes, I'm a female, I'm a woman. And that's a biological thing. That's a physical thing. So you can go down to the very um, imperceptive features of men and women and say, okay, we can tell this is a man, this is a woman, male, female. Or you can just look at them laying there right after they're born. Man, woman. And so are boy, girl. And yet there seems to be this, what I would call, uh, the depraved mind that Romans 1 talks about and the doctrines of demons that Paul talks about that says we're to reject what is right there in front of us. Because the reality is that's what Adam and Eve did in chapter 3 of Genesis 2. They walked with God in the cool of the day. They saw this beautiful garden that he had put them in. And yet they saw that one tree and they heard that one prohibition and they rejected what was right there in front of them. The glory and the beauty and the goodness of God. And they believed something different. So some people raise the question, well, aren't there exceptions sometimes with regard to how people are born? Yes, there can be certain anomalies physically. But the exception doesn't negate the rule. Yes, there are difficult cases and, and things like that, but there still is a rule that as a rule, this is what we can easily use to identify a man and a woman physically. Well, the physical markers are important because it helps us have a starting point in terms of figuring out, okay, what am I supposed to be doing? If I don't even know what I am, then how can I even have a starting point? And that's where a lot of people are. They're very confused. They're filled with anxiety because now they have to define themselves. And they don't feel like there's anybody that can define them for them. And so we're trying to let five-year-olds, six-year-olds, eight-year-olds define themselves. And we think that's good for them. And it's not. We're setting them up for failure. We're setting them up for true uh, trauma and angst and all kinds of problems in the future. And so when we think about the issue of manhood in particular, once a man or a boy realizes, okay, God created me as a boy, and uh, that means I'm going to become a man. I'm not going to be a boy and one day turn into a woman. No, boys grow up and they become men. And so therefore, what is... Um, the vision that God has given for being a man. And the first thing that we probably should highlight is the idea of responsibility. And in our day and time, there's a lot of uh, talk about, you know, just kind of, you know, becoming yourself, following your own feelings, follow your heart, 
just act, you know, self-actualization and that kind of thing. And a lot of it has to do with being irresponsible rather than being responsible. It's about abdicating your responsibility and just being free to do whatever you want to do. Now, obviously, women have responsibilities too. So we're not saying that women are irresponsible and they're not called to be responsible. What we're saying is men, what it means to be a man, has to start with boys and men understanding that we were created to be responsible and then to find out what we're responsible to do. Um, it's interesting, there's a, um, a book and then it was turned into a movie called Sophie's Choice. I haven't seen uh, the movie or anything like that, but there's a discussion in there about Auschwitz, one of the concentration camps. And somebody asked the question in light of what took place in this concentration camp, where was God? Someone else says the answer is the question, where was man? So what's the point of that? The point is we might question the absence of God in those situations, but there's another question. What about the absence of man? Why didn't man show up? Meaning, why was there so much inhumanity going on? Why why wasn't there uh, men taking responsibility for others in a positive way? In verse 24... It talks about the purpose of marriage and it says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. If you think about that, it doesn't say the man and the woman will leave their father and their mother. It could because that's what's supposed to happen. But it says the man shall leave. Why does it simply say the man shall leave? I think the implication is The man is to take responsibility for this wife he's been joined to and therefore he is not to depend on other people like his parents to do what is his responsibility. His responsibility is to take care of his wife and whatever children God might give him. And so the idea of being responsible for others is very much an important part of thinking about what it means to be a man. Um, John Piper says, I define a husband's leadership as a sense of benevolent responsibility to lead, protect, and provide for his wife. The key phrase there is a sense of benevolent responsibility. He goes on to talk about, what about about those husbands that get into car wrecks and are disabled and can't work a job and provide? He says that's why the the phrase sense of benevolent responsibility is important that even if certain men are limited in what they can do for various reasons there should be a recognition that this is my responsibility and i need to do whatever i can do to make sure this happens to whatever degree i have to depend on someone else then i do that but i don't simply say well that's somebody else's responsibility now no i still am to be responsible and that's what we see happening in genesis 1 2 and 3 as god describes the relationship between adam and eve it's very clear that god holds adam responsible for what happened with serpent the serpent and eve and what they did adam 
was the responsible person. And therefore, the picture is uh, certainly husbands and fathers need to be responsible. And in general, there's a sense in which men should see a responsibility. Um, And we'll talk about that a little more as we go through this. But it's a responsibility that means that it might require me to sacrifice. It's not necessarily going to be an easy responsibility. Um, It was interesting when the Titanic was going down, uh, one of the uh, second officers said to Captain Smith, hadn't we better get the women and children into the boats? And so it's one of the most famous examples of the principle of women and children first. But there was this idea in our culture and in Western culture for a long time that in those kinds of situations, it ought to be obvious what men should do. Men should put women and children before themselves and should seek to sacrifice in whatever way they need to for the sake of those that they're responsible for. And that's what happened in that situation. In our day and time, you have to wonder if that happened again, what it would look like. If the stronger men would be fighting the women and the children to get into the boats first. The survival of the fittest, survival of the strongest, survival of those who we might think are the most important. And so the idea of sacrifice is something that's important. I think that's also implied through what we see in verse 24 when it talks about a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife. The idea of being joined is glued, to be glued to his wife, no matter what. And therefore to be willing to sacrifice for her because the implication is if I'm going to be with you no matter what, then it might cost me something to be there with you no matter what. And so the picture is a picture of what Doug Wilson describes as masculinity is the glad assumption of sacrificial responsibility. It's gladly taking on the reality that God has called me as a man to be responsible and to be responsible in a way that costs me. Because my life as a man is meant to put point to the man, Jesus Christ. That's why we see the same kind of thing reflected in Ephesians 5, 25, when it says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrifice. He took responsibility for the church and he sacrificed for the church. And so the idea of sacrificial responsibility in certain ways, is very, very important. It's not to, it doesn't mean that women never sacrifice. Sac- women, mothers, wives, women in general, sacrifice in all kinds of ways. But we're talking about being responsible and sacrificing in certain specific ways that God has called men to do that. And one of those main ways is the idea of being a protector, that men are responsible to protect, to preserve uh, life. It's interesting, the uh, Orthodox Presbyterian Church did a study in light of the fact that um, our our government was beginning to um, put women in combat roles. And so the OPC decided to come up with a statement, a policy. You know, what do we tell our people? What do we tell our pastors? 
about what they should think about that. And what they said was, it must be concluded that the evidence of the Bible is to exempt women from being drafted into the military and from military combat and to charge men with the responsibility of combat. That phrase, we are to charge men. That means you need to identify men from women. Got to know who the men are. And that you're to charge them with the responsibility of doing what? Protecting our nation. Protecting the women and the children. That is the man's responsibility to go into battle. It's the man's responsibility to be a, the kind of policeman that puts himself in danger. The soldier role, the policeman role, where you're actually putting yourself in danger, is not meant for women, according to the Bible. It's interesting, there's a verse in Deuteronomy 22.5, where it says, The woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man, neither shall a man put on a woman's garment. For all that do so are an abomination unto the Lord thy God. What's interesting about that verse is that the phrase, the woman shall not wear that which pertaineth unto a man. The Hebrew behind that uh, phrase, that which pertains to a man, could more literally be translated the gear of a warrior. The woman is not to put on the gear of a warrior. And so that's why the uh, Reformed Evangelical Churches has said, it is not lawful for women to be mustered for combat service, for our Lord has declared it an abomination for women to don the martial attire of a man. And they quote, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 22.5. And so is it really moving forward, being progressive, being uh, improving society? by somehow putting women in combat or putting women on the front lines in the most dangerous of situations. And the Bible would say, no, it's not a step forward. It's a step away from the design that God has given, that it is men who are responsible to protect women and children, those who are unable to protect themselves. In fact, I think that's reflected in verse 15, Uh, at least in principle, when it says of chapter 2 of Genesis, then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The word keep is to guard or protect or to watch over and preserve. I think the same kind of idea in principle is found in Ephesians 5, 29, when it says, For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. To cherish means to protect it, to value it, and to do what you have to do to preserve it. And so I think there's all kinds of ways the Bible reinforces the idea of, in general, men seeing their role as being a protector, and then in certain situations, definitely being the ones to provide that protection. And then from that, we can also see the importance of providing Now, one thing I was going to say about the whole protecting thing, that doesn't mean women never do any protecting. In fact, uh, our David is still alive today because of my wife. Uh, When our kids were young, they would go down to Irvine and swim in Grandma's pool. David was real small. He decided to jump uh, jump in the deep end, thought he could swim, and he was sinking. And Jan 
threw off whatever she needed to throw off in terms of whatever, uh, you know, phone and stuff like that. Dove in, rescued David, and David's thought was, why did it take you so long? But she protected. So it's not to say that women never protect. What I'm saying is there are certain ways in which God has designed men to be the protector, and that glorifies God uh, through men. In the same way, it's not to say that women never provide. If you read Proverbs 31, that woman in Proverbs 31 is doing all kinds of things to help provide for the family. Very productive. But who's responsible? There are certain situations in which the man is responsible to protect. There are certain situations in which the man is responsible to provide, even when the wife and mother is doing a lot of help in that area. But when it comes right down to it, who will answer for the provision for that family and the protection of that family? The man will answer to God. Just like Adam answered to God when everything went down the way it did in the Garden of Eden. And so we ask the question of what about women in the workplace? We're basically asking the question, most importantly, who is responsible for providing for the family? It's not simply an issue of whether women should work outside the home or not. It's whether or not the man has a sense of benevolent responsibility, like Piper says. Has the man embraced the fact that he's supposed to see that his family is provided for and that is his responsibility to do that? The word cultivate in verse 15 implies just that, to God gave Adam the responsibility of cultivating or working or serving, which means to enhance or develop or improve uh, the garden. And that cultivation uh, certainly includes everything in the garden, including his wife and whatever children they would eventually have had if nothing had changed. And so the responsibility to provide is important. And I think the idea of of nourishing in Ephesians 5.29 when it says no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, the idea of nourishing is providing for. Um, it says in 1 Timothy 5, 8, If anyone, if any man does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so taking responsibility, being willing to sacrifice because I'm responsible to protect and provide is very much a part of what it means to embrace the uh, of what God has created us to be as men. But two more things uh, before we wrap up here, and that is the issue of leadership. And there are two aspects of the leadership. One is a spiritual aspect, and what I'm calling a priest, so to speak. The responsibility to lead spiritually. And that's not to say that women can't lead or don't lead in certain contexts. Uh, Obviously, if you're a single mother, uh, then you're going to have to provide what the absent father is not going to be able to provide. And so there are certain contexts where that has to happen. But God has designed it for men to be the spiritual leaders in their home and in other situations. And so you see the illustration of Martin Luther who got married late in life 
And it says that he spent time each day praying with his children, reciting the Ten Commandments, the Lord's Prayer, and singing a psalm. He embraced the fact that even though his the wife he married, the woman he married was a former nun, and certainly was very capable and could have done the same thing, he understood that it was his responsibility to take on that leadership role. So it doesn't mean that women can't do it, that they're not qualified, that they're not capable, that they're not spiritual. It just means God has designed the man to take the lead in this area, in the spiritual aspect of the family's life. And that was part of the problem with the fall, is that Adam followed instead of leading in the whole situation, the temptation with the serpent. God comes to Adam, it says in Genesis 3.17, and says, because you listen to the voice of your wife. And then he says, this is going to be the consequence. Now, was he saying, you should never listen to the voice of your wife? No. He was saying, because you listen to the voice of your, your wife instead of listening to the voice of God. I told you, trust me, believe that I love you, and don't eat from this tree. And instead of listening to me, you listen to the voice of your wife. You did not lead your wife to trust me. You did not lead your wife to love as I called you to love. And therefore, this is what is going to be the consequence. And so, if we're wise as men, we'll listen to our wives. Unless they're like Job's wife, who says, curse God and die. And then you do what Job said. You're talking like the foolish women talk. I'm not listening to you. But there are a lot of cases when we as men are wise to listen to our wives because they're our helpmates. They've been given to us by God to help us. And yet, I have to take responsibility for the spiritual life of my family. And whatever contribution... Uh, the wife and mother makes, that's great, but it's not up to her to do everything in this area. And so being responsible is very, very important. And that's the implication in Ephesians 5, when it says the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. It goes on in verse 26 to say, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water, with the word simply highlights the the spiritual leadership of the of the husband and that's one why one reason why God says men are to lead in the church as elders and provide that spiritual leadership well next the idea of of a prince prince means the idea of leadership in very practical ways um, it doesn't mean that women can't lead in practical ways if you read the old testament in the book of Judges, Deborah was a judge. But Deborah was an exception to the rule. And the implication is that God raised up Deborah to do things that the men weren't willing to do. And sometimes that happens. Sometimes that's the reality. And yet God has designed men to lead in certain ways. And he calls men to provide very practical leadership. And again... Adam should have listened to God and not to his wife in terms of what to do. In fact, Adam should have been aware of what was going on between Eve and the serpent 
and should have pulled her away and said, don't listen to that thing right there. There should have been practical implications of his spiritual leadership. And so that's why it says in Ephesians 5 that wives ought to be uh, subject to their husbands in everything. It's an amazing statement. Not just in spiritual things, not just in doctrinal matters, but in everything, which means practical things. The, the man is to take the lead in the relationships. And yet it says in First Peter that husbands are to live with their wives in an understanding way, which means men are not to lead as dictators. They're to lead as God does, as Christ does, with love and consideration and wisdom from Scripture. Well, finally, let me just kind of wrap it up here. Um, Men are meant to trust and love. In, In the definition that I gave you, I said that a man is a biological male created in the image of God to be strong and courageous and trusting and loving according to God's word especially in taking responsibility for leading, both spiritually and practically, in protecting and providing as God has designed through whatever sacrifice is necessary. And I've tried to highlight various aspects of that. But at the heart of it is the phrase that we've been created in the image of God to be strong and courageous in trusting and loving according to God's word in light of all the responsibilities that we've been given. So when we talk about protecting and providing, being a certain kind of priest and prince. We're talking about, ultimately, not just coming up with our own ideas about what that's supposed to look like, but actually looking at what the Word of God says about what does it mean to protect and provide? What does it mean to be the kind of priest and prince God wants me to be as a man? And therefore, trusting God's Word and seeking to love according to God's Word. There are a lot of people that think that manhood is about just being independent, doing my own thing, going my own way, rugged individualism, the American ideal. And Nietzsche was a philosopher who came up with the idea that God is dead, meaning we basically killed him because we don't need him anymore. But he said, independence is for the very few. It is a privilege of the strong. In his mind... Uh, The superman, the man that we're all supposed to eventually become in the next level of evolution is the man who is ruthlessly independent, ruthlessly independent of any ideas about God or about the Bible or about truth or about what people expect or about what people want. But I just do what I want to do and I am what I want to be. And that is the superman. And the Bible says, no, that is the stupid man. And Isaiah uses the word stupid. So I'm quoting scripture when I use that word. (laughs) And because the reality is we're dust. Dust saying, I don't need you, God. And I can be whatever I want to be. And we're dust mites. Dust mites. And the Bible says... Don't you realize that you were created to be holy and be happy in God? And you're going to reject that and think you can be what you need to be on your own. And so that's why we find things like what it says in 1 Corinthians 16. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 
Let all that you do be done in love. And so if you think about the context there, the whole acting like men is very much connected to trusting, uh, being um, firm in your faith. It's about loving. Let all that you do be done in love. You're not being a man just by throwing your weight around and uh, using women and, and doing whatever you want to do. That's not being a man. Being a man is trusting God and loving like God says to love in ways that will challenge you. That takes real strength. That takes real courage to trust God in those ways and love people in those ways. Uh, Spurgeon could say men will allow God to be everywhere but on his throne. You know, he can be in his workshop doing things. He can be dispensing bounties in various ways. But the last place that God, or excuse me, men want God to be is in charge. And yet we cannot be what we were created to be as men unless God is on the throne. He is on the throne. The question is whether or not he's on the throne of our hearts and lives. So what is the application for Father's Day? It's this in our culture. Voltaire, who was uh, another atheist, said something that's really interesting, at least it's attributed to him. He said, anyone who can make you believe absurdities can make you commit atrocities. If someone can make you believe something that's absurd, they can make you do something that's atrocious. That's what's happening right now with the transgender thing. There are atrocious things happening to young people in the name of absurdities. And so what does that mean for us as men and as fathers? Uh, We need to give good gifts to our children. Mark talked about the passage in Luke. It's also reflected in Matthew. In Matthew it says, If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven Give what is good to those who ask him. To be a father as God calls us to be, we have to receive the good gifts of the children God has given us. The children we have are good gifts from God that we are to receive. And as fathers, we are to give good gifts to our children. And part of what we need to do as men and as fathers in our culture today is to give our children the good gift of telling them what it means to be a man and telling them what it means to be a woman. We need to give them the good gift of modeling what it means to be a man and to choose affliction over sin. That was what we talked about last week at our small group in the passage, um, or in the chapter in Knowing Sin, the book we're going through, he says, choosing suffering over sin is choosing to live like our Savior. In our day and time, people are trying to make us embrace absurdities that will lead us to commit atrocities. And God says, reject the absurdities and choose suffering over sin, choose suffering over lies. John Bunyan spent 12 years in a jail because he would not um, compromise his faith. And yet he said... Um, that he was tormented by the implications of that for his family. He said, The parting with my wife and poor children has often been to me in this place as the pulling of the flesh from my bones. 
He says, it's torturous to me to realize that my family is suffering because of the stand I've taken. That my blind daughter could be suffering in ways I can't even imagine because I'm not there to help provide for them. But he chose suffering for himself and for them over lies. And he trusted God to do what God would would do. He trusted the ultimate father to take care of them and to take care of him. The bottom line is, we're not to look to men or fathers, but we're to look through them. We're to look through men and fathers to God and to the man, Jesus Christ. We're not to depend on men and fathers, but we are to depend on the Father through them. So the submission of the wife and the following of the wife and the children is ultimately meant to be an act of faith where I trust that God is going to bless us through this man and this father and that our ultimate hope is in God. So just wrap this up for time's sake. What do we do with imperfect men and imperfect fathers? Or what do we do as imperfect men and imperfect fathers? Number one, we trace the good back to the perfect father. If there's any good in any fathers, it's because of the ultimate father. It's because of his gracious work, common grace and special grace. Secondly, we trace the bad back to the perfect savior knowing that as Christian men, we know that those sins and failures have been punished in Christ and that they are being saved from their failures through him. And so we worship the ultimate father and we rest in the perfect savior. That's what God calls us to do. And ultimately, all of this is meant to drive us to faith in the man. Pilate said of Christ when he had the thorns on his brow, Behold, not a man, but the man. So manhood is ultimately meant to point us to Jesus and our need for Jesus. And that's what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in just a minute. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for just an opportunity to reflect for a few minutes on what your word has to say about manhood as well as fatherhood, something that's under attack in our day and something that is being undermined in all kinds of ways. And yet it's so important for us to understand as men how we're to glorify you. And so I pray, Father, that we would have a renewed vision in our own lives for what it means to be men, to be husbands and fathers, and that you'd help us to seek to grow in that by grace. And at the same time, help us to rest in you, Lord Jesus, for our failure to be all that we should be as husbands and fathers and as men. And may we look to you for all that we need. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.